morning. <laughs> it's good to see you. Um, I don't know about you, but I am thankful that the Lord's mercies are new every morning, and uh, I need some this morning. So um, before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Um, the snow is beautiful, so... Um, and I guess if you're driving in it, it's not that beautiful, but it looks, it's beautiful to look at. But thankful you're here this morning. We have a lot we want to cover this morning, so I'm going to get started and we're going to pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for how you reveal yourself to us in your word. And at times it's really hard because you are a great and awesome God and it's it's, it's hard to understand all that you are revealing to us, but I'm grateful that your word is sure, that it is true, and I'm grateful that you've given to us the Holy Spirit who guides us into truth. We need that desperately this morning. We need, we need to, to lay aside our, our limited understanding to, to have you speak directly to our hearts this morning, Father, and we pray that you would do that in a way that only you can do. We keep in mind the truth of Romans 15, where it says that these things were written for our learning, that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. So give us hope this morning through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in just a second, Aaron's going to hand out a document and maybe get some help. Hey, Scott Hall, good to see you. You thought you could sneak in and yeah, yeah, hey, Scott Hall, good to see you. Really good to see you. Um, in just a second, Aaron's going to hand out a document, and I just want to give some instruction on this document. This document is covering just about everything we've talked about for the, for the previous two weeks and what we're going to talk about today, but I'm going to refer to this document as we're going through today, and I know human nature. You're going to want to start at the beginning and read while I'm teaching. I know some of you are going to do that. That's fine. But I'm not starting from the beginning, okay? I'm starting towards the middle to the end of this document. Um, this is a document, quite honestly, that the elders worked through back in November. And I want to say a couple things about that. This, this is a document that is a product of all four elders. Um, in the course of the last three weeks, word gets back to me. I know you find that hard to believe. And I want to talk about a couple things. One the statement has been made that the elders are not in agreement with what's being taught here on Sunday morning. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The four elders are in complete agreement with what's being taught, okay? And, and that, that, that statement is a false statement. Someone also has mentioned that the verses that I'm using seem to be cherry-picked throughout the Scripture. I want to deal with that this morning. We're talking about a study of theology, and I think it's wise to give you the scope of Scripture on these things. Um, it was made, the statement was made, well, Pastor Dan has, and he has abandoned what he normally does. He exposits. I could exposit this, and I will be doing it in the future, but I'm going to take the whole book of Romans to do it, and we don't have time to do that. But the book of Romans does exposit all of this, and that is one of the reasons why we're going to preach through Romans. So, 
we aren't abandoning our expository approach to this. What we're doing is talking about theological ideas here. And when you're doing that, it's never a good idea, would you admit to me, to just pick one text and have one text as your only proof text for what you're saying is truth. It's never a good idea. So what we're trying to do is give you what the Word of God says, not in total, because we don't have time to do that, but we're trying to give you some great foundational texts. Many of you have said, I can't keep up with the text that you're giving. This is why the document is being given to you. For all the things that we've covered, there are those texts that I have referred to are there. Those texts that I have referred to are there. So with that being said, Aaron, would you get some help and hand that out? Because I, I do want to get this in people's hands. Could someone give Aaron a hand, please? There's, there, Dave. Thank you. And I, I, I want to make sure that you get this in your hand. Um, and so that we get going. The goal for today is I want to finish what God accomplished in, in salvation, and then I want to reconcile these two truths. I want to talk about how these two truths reconcile. If we have time, we'll allow for questions. I know many of you have questions, and here's my plan. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be here next Sunday. I'm going to be in West Virginia um, officiating Colin and Ashley's wedding, and so I won't be back on Sunday. But two weeks from this Sunday... Um, you'll have normal ABF next Sunday, so ABF leaders, you have normal ABF next week, but two weeks from today, what I'd like to do is, I would like to deal with your questions, and what I want you to do, what I want you to do so that this is done orderly, is in the next two weeks, probably preferably in the next week, if you have questions, email me those questions. Send me those questions so that I can deal with them, I can organize them so that I'm not dealing with, like three questions that are kind of on the same thing at different time. I'd like to just be able to organize those. Is that fair? And then two Sundays from now, I'll deal with those questions as they're emailed to me, okay? So, um, we got a lot of ground to cover. Um, let's talk, and as this is being handed out, I am trying to figure out where we are here. I have it. We're probably here. We're down at the bottom of the second page, okay? Down at the bottom of the second page. We're talking about what God does. And last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that God has to initiate salvation because man is incapable because he is dead in his trespasses and sins. And I want to clear up one thing I said, because I think it was kind of provocative and I didn't mean it to be. When I was talking about free will, I'm not saying that man doesn't have a will, that he has choices to make. But what I am saying is, no matter what state man is in, if he is, if he is dead in his trespasses and sins, he is slave to those trespasses and sins. If, if he is regenerated in Christ, he is the slave of Christ. And so, no matter who you're the slave of, you, are, you don't have a free will, you have a will that is tempered by who you are a slave to. So I want to make sure that we understand that, Okay. I'm not saying that man doesn't have responsibility and have will to make choices. He does. He does. But his will is completely affected by who he is the slave of. Think about this. How many, anybody, else, anybody else in this room besides me have a life-dominating sin that you've had to fight against? Anybody wrestle with pride? Anybody wrestle with, you know, you know lack of control on certain things? You find yourself in the situation that Paul talks about in Romans. I find it, he, Paul says, I find this as a law, as a rule, that the things I don't want to do, I'm doing, and the things I know to do, I'm not doing. Because we are, we are constantly battling 
this, this slave idea. And even in Christ, we're no longer slaves of sin, but we have the body of flesh that's used to being the slave of sin, and that's one of the big battles we have. Okay, so what does God do? He, he initiates it, and then I, I want you to see at the bottom of the sheet, God calls or commands sinners to receive the gift of salvation. Let's go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. So, this is on the tail end of, of what we had talked about last week in terms of predestination and that kind of thing. So, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, okay? He called. And, and so what we want to understand here is, is that God, God issues a call or a command, okay? He, he, he says, here, here is the truth about you. You are lost and dead in your trespasses and sins. You're actively rebelling against me. I am calling you to salvation. God calls, okay? If you're here today and you know Christ is your Savior, it's because you were called by God. You were called, Okay, does God use people in his call? Does he? We're going to talk about that at the end about how we reconcile these two truths, but he does. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12 is another text, and I've put it there for you. It talks about we were being called into this salvation. So what does God have to do in dead hearts? What does he have to do in dead hearts? Well, he has to revive them, right? So there's a couple things that he does. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I believe I referred to this last week. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have, and we're going to read it, 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 the idea that Satan is actively working to blind hearts and minds. Do you see that in the world that you live in today? That Satan is actively trying to blind hearts and minds? Yeah. So what does God have to do? Well, verse 4, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Have you ever had the experience where you've shared the gospel with somebody and they just look at you like a deer in the headlights, they have no concept of what you're saying? Yeah. You know why? It's because Satan is actively blinding them. He's actively blinding them. So verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God who commanded at creation, let there be light, is also commanding light, the light of the gospel to shine in people's hearts, okay? In other words, it takes a really powerful act to bring somebody's heart back to life. Would you agree with me that creating light out of nothing and, and shining it into the darkness was a very powerful act? That same kind of power has to be in effect here in someone's heart. So first, God eliminates satanic blindness. When I say first, I'm, I'm not trying to put it here in an orderly fashion. These are things that just happen, okay? I'm not putting it in a timeline. Secondly, in my list here, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Let's go to John chapter 16. I'm going to use this, and there's other verses we could use, as I said, but we're going to use, I'm trying to, for the sake of time. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. John 16, verse 8. 
So Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is in the upper room. He's telling them he's leaving, but he makes a promise to them. And who does he promise he's going to leave with them? Who's he promised, church? He's going to leave his spirit, right? So he's talking about this, and he says in verse 8, and when he, this is the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to my Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged, okay? Without Holy Spirit conviction, will a person respond to the gospel? No, okay? Okay, so, so there has to be conviction, okay? Then God imparts a couple things here. And let's look at Acts chapter 5. There's two things that God has to give to us that we will not generate on our own. Acts chapter 5. Somebody want to give us a definition of what repentance is? And I'll repeat it for the recording. Someone, what is repentance? What? Someone, say it loud for me. A turning away, a, a 180. Is it just a simple "my bad" to God, like I've been bad, God? No, it's an active. It's a, it's a confession that that you are sinful and that you are you are willingly involved in sin, and it is a complete turn from that. Okay, it's a complete turn. Okay, that's what repentance is. Repentance is not easy believism, which is really a big part of the world that we live in today. Easy believism is, you know, well, your life is really bad, but God can make it better if you just turn to Him. And, and that's not repentance. Repentance is a brokenness over your sin and understanding that you've offended a holy God and so broken that you turn from it to pursue, right? But we already said We already said that dead men can't do that, right? Because they're dead, they're slaves of sin. So God has to, if you do, do this work of repentance in a man's heart, or a woman's heart, or a child's heart. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. God exalted him, talking about Jesus, this Jesus you killed, verse 30. God exalted him at the right hand of the, as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Okay, now some might be tempted to say, well, God only gave repentance to Israel. In Romans 15:4, I even said it in my prayer, whatever was written was written for our learning, right? Is God the same with Israel as he is with, with us today in many ways? Does he act the same way? Does he have the same character? Yes. It's Jesus who has to give, God who has to give repentance. Okay? So, we could also look at Acts chapter 11. Let's just turn over there. We're in Acts. Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. Because it's not just Israel, okay? Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Where does repentance come from, church? It comes from God. Can you manufacture repentance? No. God has to put that, He has to give that to you, okay? God has to do that work in your heart. The Holy Spirit has to convict to do that. That's hard for us because our experience is, any one of us who's come to Christ, we've experienced that feeling of forgiveness, and, and we might be tempted to think 
That is something that happened in my soul that I came to this understanding and not understanding what the first cause of that was. The first cause was God granting that to us. Does that make sense? Okay. Not only does he do that, he has to give us something else. We all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's two things in there that are gifted to us. Grace through what? Faith. The faith that you and I, that we put in Christ, and we talk about this. You've, you've heard invitations be given. You know, just put your faith in Christ. It makes it sound like it's something that I just do of myself. Like my faith, like to trust this chair, to hold me up. Just that simple faith. No, that faith has to be given to you. That faith is a gift. God imparts faith. We're in Acts still. Let's go to Acts chapter 3. Let me give you another proof text. Acts chapter 3. This is when Peter and John are healing the lame man at the temple gate, right? And so now they are, now they're, they're, Peter's preaching, okay, after this. Verse 16, he says, and by his name, that's Christ's name, by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know, and that, and the faith that is what? What's the next two words? What's the source of faith? It's Christ. It's Christ. It's not man. It wasn't this man's faith. It was, it was faith that was granted to him. It was faith that was granted to him. God has to do that. Now, there's a lot of different ways we could talk about in the scriptures, because the scriptures uses different terminology with this, but the one that I love the most is found in John chapter 6, when Jesus is talking. Let's go to John chapter 6. So in John chapter 6, this is Jesus at the beginning of John chapter 6 feeds the 5,000, and then he preaches in response to that, and he makes that great statement, one of the great I am statements in the book of John where he says, I am the bread of life, right? Okay, so in talking about salvation, Jesus in John chapter 6 says this back in verse 37, okay? Verse, let's get into it in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, do you see there the call? You have to come. Do you see the call? I mean, you have to believe. Okay. All right. There, there is the whoever. Okay. The whosoever. We talked about this two weeks ago. Do you see the whoever? Okay. But I said to you, verse 6, that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father what? Gives me will come. Okay? And, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. How does the Father give them to Jesus? If we keep going in the text, go down to verse 44. I love this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay? When you think of drawing... Don't think of when you were trying to woo your spouse. Sweet little words and, and little cards and Valentine's gifts and, and, and trying to be as sweet as you could and camouflaging all of your warts and everything. 
Okay, that's not the kind of drawing here. This word literally gets translated in other places in the scriptures, drag. Drag. So do you understand here what God has to do? Because, because we saw last week we're all rebelling against the Father, we all are willfully sinning, we already are born and we come into this world with a sinful nature that's dead in our trespasses and sins, God literally has to drag us to Christ. He literally drags us to the cross. Miranda? Yeah, there's both here. There's both and. I'm not denying it. Everyone, whosoever, but it's everyone who the Father drags. The Father has to drag you to the cross. Because willingly we will not go to the cross. Because we're slaves to sin, right? So God has to do a work. But both are there. Both are there. Don't deny it. Don't deny it. Both are there. Okay? You say, this is just making it more confused. Well, yes, maybe it does. But both are there and not denying it. Jesus in his own words. Rick. Yes. I'm called to it, yes. So, so God, God has to draw us to himself. And that is a glorious truth when you think about it, that God would take anyone as despicable as me and, and as despicable as you and would set his love on any of us and draw us to the cross. That, that, that is a glorious truth, that he would do that. But it doesn't stop there. Go back to where we started in Romans chapter 8, because this is kind of the outline that we're going to use here for today. So God has to justify us, right? And that's what the next thing is. He commands us to receive salvation. Not only does he command us, he drags us to the cross, okay? Does that mean, okay, let me just stop. Does that mean that little children who are five years old, they had to be dragged to the cross? When they came to know Christ, did they have to be dragged to the cross as much as 55-year-old men who are, you know, lived a terrible life of sin? Do they have to be dragged just as equally? Yes, because they're all dead in their trespasses and sins. So if you're sitting here and saying, you know, as a child, I knew I was a sinner and all these things, understand that was God dragging you to the cross and praise Him for it. Praise Him for it. But it doesn't stop there. He justifies us. Romans 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Justification is a glorious doctrine. It, it, it simply, simply means this, that God declares us to be righteous. Is there anyone in this room who deserves to be declared righteous? Do little tiny babies who look so cute and so helpless and so wonderful, are they, are they deserving of being justified? No. No. God has to do it. We're in Romans, so let's just use close texts that are close. Romans chapter 5 and verse 16. 
God has to justify. Because we can't make ourselves righteous. He has to declare us righteous. And, and we're going to talk about how he does that. And let's understand here, unsaved are condemned. Romans chapter 5, verse 16. And the free gift is not, like the, is not like the result of that one man's sin, Adam's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. All of mankind, because we are the sons of Adam, are condemned. Okay? We're all condemned. Okay? We're, we, we are without hope. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for how many men? All men. We're all condemned. On top of that, go back to a verse you know really well, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Not only are we condemned, we all, when we're trying to manufacture our righteousness, according to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, what's the truth there? We all what? We all miss the mark, right? We woefully miss the mark. Not only are we born condemned, we trying to manufacture our own righteousness come up short, Okay? Because God's standard is perfection and holiness because He Himself is holy and perfect, right? That's His standard for righteousness. We can't match it. So, back to Romans chapter 8. Who does the justifying? Verse 33. Let's get into it. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for who? For all. Okay. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who what? Who does the work of justification, church? God does. Can you justify yourself? No. Don't confuse justification with sanctification. Justification is a one time you're declared righteous, and because you're declared righteous, you now have the ability to pursue sanctification, correct? Okay, so it's God who justifies, so what does he do? Well, God does this beautiful thing where he imputes righteousness to man. We're in Romans, let's just stay there, Romans 4, I've given you other texts there. But this is fresh in our minds because if you've been attending on Sunday mornings, we've been talking about Abraham, right? So Romans 4, verses 1 through 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, if he had something to boast about, but not before God. Okay, stop there. Paul's saying, if Abraham was justified by works, what? He could brag about it, right? Like, I did more than than this guy, and I did more than this guy. Look at what I did to, to, to be justified. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due, okay? It was counted to him as righteousness. It was put to his account as righteousness, the faith and again, we saw in the last point, where did Abraham's faith come from? It came from God, okay? So again, God gives faith, then God, God justifies, he imputes righteousness to, to us. 
But God is a just God. He can't just willy-nilly say, Scarberry, I like you, and I'm going to give you righteousness even though you're not righteous, because that would violate his sense of justice. Somebody has to pay for my unrighteousness, correct? Somebody has to pay for God to be satisfied, his sense of justice to be satisfied. So the basis of that imputed righteousness is Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father. Again, we're in Romans. Go to chapter 5, verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, who is that again? Who's the one man that Paul's referring to here? Adam. By, by Adam's disobedience, many, the many were made sinners. Don't, don't get hung up on that. Some people will say it's many, not all. No, all of us are born into, into Adam's rebellion. Okay, we're all included there. Okay, many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, who's the one man's obedience? Christ. Christ's obedience to the Father, Christ's obedience, and and remember, he, He didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. Christ is the only person who's walked on this earth who kept the law completely. Let that sink in. By His obedience, the many will be made righteous. So what's the basis that God, God can say, okay, Scarberry, you're a sinner, you are fallen, you're a rebel, I'm shining my light into your heart, I, I'm convicting you with the Holy Spirit, I'm drawing you to myself, I'm going to declare you righteous. What is the basis of that righteousness? It's the sacrifice of Christ. And so, and so, because I know this doesn't happen just to me, when Satan comes and accuses you of not being good enough, what is the answer to that? You're right, but I have been given what? The righteousness of Christ. You're right, Satan, I'm not good enough, but I've been given the righteousness of Christ. So justification is an important thing for us to understand. It's a beautiful thing for us to understand. We have to know it. We have to, we have to believe it, okay? What does justification enable us to do? Well, let's break away. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Justification allows us to be able to live righteously. Justification, let's, let's, get the, let's get the cart and horse in the right order. We have to be justified first so that we can be sanctified. And sanctified means to live holy, to live righteously, right? So we have to be justified first. There are a lot of religions in the world today, false religions, that, that make this totally different. They, they switch the cart and the horse. They want you to live, they want you to live sanctified so that you can be justified. You will never be able to do that. Christ justifies us. God justifies us so that we can be sanctified. Okay? 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Talking about Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Isn't that an amazing thing? He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to what? Okay? We die to sin so that we can be made alive to what? 
Elsewhere in the scriptures, it's called being a slave to righteousness. Again, remember, our will now is determined, how we act is determined by who we're the slave to, okay? And so we can become the slaves of righteousness in Christ, and so now we have the ability to perform righteousness. Let me give you another one, Ephesians chapter 2. This is a well-known one. Let's just draw our attention to that. Ephesians chapter 2. So after, for by grace are you saved by faith, then you have verse 10, right? Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The only way we can walk in these good works is if verses 8 and 9 come true, right? Right? So, understand this. this. This thing that God does in our hearts that, that we have such a hard time wrapping our head around is what enables us today to live righteously. It's what enables us today to live in a way that, that pleases Him. We talk about glorifying Him. We were created to glorify Him. See it there in verse 10. We are His workmanship. God the craftsman. Has, has made us, designed us, so that we can do good works. The only way we can do that, though, is if our hearts have been regenerated. Okay? And it doesn't just stop there. Justification, then, guarantees something that is so important. How many of you are looking forward to heaven? Without justification, we have no guarantee of it. Let me show you that in the scriptures. Let's go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. And let's look at verse 7. Let's get into it though. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Okay, how are we saved? Remember Ephesians 2, by grace through faith, not our works, right? He saved us, not, but in our, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, His own mercy, His choosing, whom He would grant mercy to, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become what? Oh, I like the sound of that, don't you? Heirs of what? If you're my heir, you're going to inherit a lot of debt. Anybody want to sign up for that? If I'm the heir of Christ, what am, I, what am I getting here? I might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Without justification, we have no guarantee of glorification. But with it, we have every guarantee of it. We have every guarantee of it. Which then leads me to the final point that I want to make of what God has to do in salvation. God glorifies the believer. Let's go back to Romans chapter 8 and let's see it in that outline that Paul so masterfully puts together there in Romans chapter 8. Just letting these verses sink in to us. So I'm going to read them again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, when God saves you, he saves you to the uttermost. He saves you to the uttermost. And what is this uttermost? Two things that glorification guarantees for us. And I, I, I hope you cling to these two things. Glorification guarantees the permanence of our salvation. The permanence of our salvation. Look at verses 31 through 39. Paul just immediately jumps into this. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? What's the answer to all those, church? Yes or no? No. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No. In all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even you yourself can separate yourself from the love of God. I'm going to deal directly with comments that have made their way back to me. That, that because I believe that God elects and predestines, that I don't believe that God secures us for salvation. That is a lie. I clearly believe. The whole book of 1 John is written what? These are written that you might what? Know that you have eternal life. Is God a liar, church? No. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. And it's not oh, I have it today and I don't have it tomorrow. No, he wants us to know rock solid that we are eternally secure in him. It guarantees the permanence of our salvation and it also guarantees to us our promised inheritance. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, that's God, who works all things to, together to the, will, to the counsel of his will. That's one place it's stated, go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, I want, to see, I want you to see it there as well, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're getting there, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, did Peter believe in election, church? Yes, he did. He did. Okay? It wasn't just a Pauline doctrine. It was a Peter doctrine, too, because it's a biblical doctrine. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 
in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven from you. We are justified, and that guarantees that we're going to get our inheritance in heaven. Okay? I've got a few minutes. I want to reconcile these truths now. I told you I wanted to do... Yes, Rick. I keep reading verse 5. I know. I could keep doing Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Yes, it's, it's God who's doing, God who's keeping us. It's God who's guarding us. Yes. I could keep going and keep expounding. I want to reconcile these truths because the first Sunday we met, we clearly saw, we even saw today, the whosoever will passages. Are they in the scriptures, church? Is the doctrine of election and predestination, are those clearly in the scriptures as well? They're both there, so both have to be true. Remember, God's not a liar. They're both there. How do we do this? How do we take this? Because let's be honest, church, in our finite human minds, this is confusing. Anybody else? Yes, it is. But both are there. So what do we do with that? Well, let me start with this. It's got to be taken by faith. And I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 11. I want you to see what Paul, who God chose to write down much of this truth for us, I want you to see how he wraps up. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are the greatest body of Scripture together that deals with God's sovereignty in my mind. You take Romans 9, 10, and 11, in my mind, it is the mountaintop of Scripture that deals with God's sovereignty, okay? He clearly says things that are hard for us to understand, like, I've hardened Pharaoh's heart. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. That sounds harsh in a way, doesn't it? But it deals with God's sovereignty, At the end of all of this section, this is what Paul writes. This is a prayer that Paul writes, okay? It's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but but this is so Paul, it's not even funny, okay? Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Can anybody say amen to that? How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has he given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul's summary of this is, I may not get it in my mind, but I know that God's got it figured out. And I know that God is doing it right. He, he, the depth of his riches and wisdom... Paul later would write to the Ephesian church, this is what Ed has been dying for me to say for three weeks. Going to do it, Ed. What does this look like in Ephesians 3? Go with me to Ephesians 3. We get a little bit of a glimpse of what God is doing here. He talks about unsearchable here. You're going to see that same word again. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. To me, Paul, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Okay, what we have been talking about in many ways for the last three weeks are the unsearchable riches of Christ. Anybody here want to come up and try and do a better job of explaining it than me? 
Not because I have it figured out. No, because you know what? We all have a hard time explaining it, right? It's unsearchable. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul here now under inspiration of the Holy Spirit is like, I'm going to share something with you that, that is just really just blows me away. Verse 10, so that through the church, who's the church? Believers, right? The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you understand what's going on here? And, and let's be honest, we mess it up a lot as the church, don't we? We muddle it up bad. But do you know what God is doing? We are down here as an object lesson for what he says in verse 10. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, they are observing this and they are learning about the character and, and the qualities of God through the church as it is functioning here on this earth. Whoa. Whoa. So God's purposes are a lot higher than ours, aren't they? They're a lot higher than ours. We're just worried about getting to next Friday, right? <laughs> right? God's purposes are much bigger. So we have to first take this by faith. Secondly, and please look up here, I want you to hear this clearly. To skew towards free will or to skew towards robotic, that we're all down here as robots, that God is just pre-programmed. To skew either way is to get off the road and to fall headlong into heresy. We cannot, we cannot, we cannot veer one way or the other. Because both are in the scriptures. Have we established that? Both are there. Both are clearly presented, and to, to skew one way is to pervert the other side. Which is why, back to what I said early on, I hate the terms that this is all put in sometimes. Reformed, non-reformed, Calvinist, Arminian. Those things tend to automatically put people on the edges. And the Word of God is clear, and the Word of God is balanced. And so what do we do? What do we personally do? What do we as a church do in response to this? Well, we have to act in faith. Notice I said not just have faith, we have to act in faith. And there's two things that we're called to do very clearly. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm going to ask you a question after we look at these two things. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I said first, it's 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry. I can't read my own writing, it's terrible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others, for what we are know is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again. And then he keeps going on and on, and he says in verse 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, 
in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The first thing we're supposed to do is carry out the ministry of reconciliation. Now, let me ask you a question. If you tend to be a little more on the free will side, or if you tend to be a little bit more strong on the predestination side, does that change the command? Church, does it change the command? It doesn't. It does not change the command. And any, any individual, any church that doesn't believe in evangelism has it wrong. We are given the ministry of reconciliation. Notice what Paul said there in verse 11. The guy who is so Calvinistic and reformed and so staunchly this way, what does he say? We persuade others. That sounds rather Arminian. Doesn't it? It's because Paul didn't believe in those labels either. He just believed the Word of God. Those labels weren't, in fairness, those labels weren't there when Paul was around. But if Paul were here today, he would say, those labels are the stupidest things I've ever heard of. Just believe the Word of God. I choose to know nothing but Christ and crucified. That's Paul's words, right? We have the ministry of reconciliation. Dave. Say that again really loud. How many of you have ever felt compelled to get somebody saved? How many of you have ever been able to save somebody? Can't do it. Some of you in this room, I know your stories. You have children that you are just begging God for. You're begging God for. And that's hard. But here's the thing. God and God alone is sovereign over his salvation, but whosoever will may come. Are those two things both true? So we act in faith, right? We act in faith. There's a second command that we're given. You know this one well, but let's look at it. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. He did not say, Go sit in your study, go sit in your living room, go gather together as the church, and be pompous about the fact that you're elect and others aren't, and just wait for God to bring people to you. Is that what he said? What did he say? Go. Go. So how do we balance these two truths? We understand, one, that we're never going to get this all figured out on earth completely. Right? And we trust the one 
who is the author and finisher of our faith to have done it well, right? And to have done it right. And it ought to humble us. If you're here today and you know Christ as your Savior and you have that eternal life, that ought to just humble you to the point, why, God, would you ever choose to set your love on me? Why? And it ought to motivate you to share that with others. So, we spent three weeks on this. I don't know if we're any smarter. But I think you clearly know where the elders and where we stand as a church on this. I think you clearly know where we stand on this. I just want to say it this way. If we were so hyper to one way, every Sunday I would preach and I would, and I would manipulate people down the aisle so that they would pray a prayer. Do I do that? Do any of the elders do that? If we were so hyper the other way, we wouldn't do evangelistic things like having a WANA program because after all, the kids tear up the building. We wouldn't run our van out to pick them up and listen to them to say bad words in the back of the van. We wouldn't have VBS programs. We wouldn't have impact where we're telling the kids that are coming who are believers to invite their unsaved friends because after all, God's going to take care of it, right? I would just say this to you, if you're still wrestling with this and you're wrestling whether or not, you know, hey, is our church right or not? Are we living out what God tells us to? Are we carrying out the ministry of reconciliation? Are we actively trying to make disciples? Yeah, we are. And I'll just leave it there with that. So next Sunday, we're going to have regular ABFs. Two weeks from today, I want you, if you have questions, and, I, and I, I'm not trying to shut questions down. I just don't have time. I knew I wasn't going to because I'm long-winded. If you have questions, write them out. Email them to me. Email them to any of the elders so that we can put them together and try to, and to, try to bring biblical answers to you two weeks from Sunday when we will gather together again for a combined ABF. Okay? Is that fair? Okay. Let's pray. Father... we would be so prideful to say that we completely understand this and we would be so dead wrong. But we will stop at this point and admit that you have given to us such a great salvation. And we just say thank you, Jesus, for making that possible through your sacrifice on the cross. And I pray that we would be busy as individuals and as a church carrying out that ministry of reconciliation that you've given to us. That we would never get complacent. That we would never get to the point where, where we don't need to be doing this. God, it sure seems like you're going to bring us a mission field of more and more people to this community. May our heartbeat always be pointing them to Jesus Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.